This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Christian Axbo Nielsen. I am Associate Professor of History and Human Security at Aarhus University in Denmark. My guest today for this episode of the New Books Network is Dr. Jesse Barton Horneshova, who is a Marie Sklodowska Curie Global Fellow at UNC in Chapel Hill and Kafoskari University. Her new project, is investigating how frames of victimhood have featured in the politics of post-socialist Europe in the past two decades, and whether and how such frames have influenced the current illiberal trends across the region. Jesse was previously ESRC postdoctoral fellow at the Oxford Department of International Development, where her research focused on post-war dealing with the past in East and Southeast Europe. She has authored and edited several studies on identity politics, and retributive transitional justice. And Jesse has also worked for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, for the OSCE, and for the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in both Sarajevo and Belgrade. Today, we're going to be discussing Jesse's new book, The Struggle of Redress, Victim Capital in Bosnia and Herzegovina, published in 2020 by Paul Grave Macmillan. This fascinating book explores the different ways in which groups of victims and survivors of the 1992-1995 Bosnian War seek redress. These include families of missing persons, victims of torture, survivors of sexual violence, and victims suffering physical disabilities and harm. In her book, Jessie traces the history of redress making for each of these groups and shows how differently they've been treated not only by the Bosnian authorities at all levels, but also in some cases in their interaction with the international community. In Bosnia and Herzegovina since the war, thousands of victims have had to suffer often re-traumatizing ordeals in order to secure any kind of recognition or redress for the suffering they endured during the war and afterwards. While some have been re- legally recognized and have been offered some forms of compensation, others have been recognized only recently and only in a geographically or ethnically limited way. So I look forward to talking to Jesse about this. Jesse, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, hello, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being my guest. And I want to start out with uh, the question that I was thinking about most of all when I started reading your book, what motivated you to write about this precise topic? This, this research was um, quite a long in, in making. And as you said, I, I worked in the region and I also worked for the ICTY in The Hague. And so the, issue, the issues of transitional justice has, have always been of, of great interest to me. And so originally when I embarked on this project, um, it, this was part of my doctoral um, research. And my doctoral research when I embarked on it was completely different. I was mainly interested in uh, Europeanization of transitional justice in Bosnia and the external influences on it. And then um, as I went into the field and as I started talking to people that have been working in the field of transitional justice and human rights um, in Bosnia, but also in the wider region of the former Yugoslavia, I realized that um, we have not really been looking at what levels of reparations, compensation, or what I then ended up um, calling redress have been uh, secured for war victims. And it has seemed to me, initially, I, I had this hunch that a lot of the efforts that have been um, 
um, given to made to um, to offer um, any type of reparations to to victims in, in Bosnia in particular had been done in an extremely piecemeal manner, and no one was initially able to explain to me who actually got what or who secured what. And it was such a such a complex picture that I decided, well, this is certainly worth um, researching because not even the utmost experts on this topic actually fully understood who's entitled to what and why. And in in dealing with uh, this subject and then approaching it, were there any past works or, or authors who particularly inspired you to to work on this? Absolutely. So um, I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Elisa Helm's work and her her study on, on victims in particular and on female victims of the war were a huge, um, were a huge inspiration um, uh, to me, as well as the works of Lauren Nettlefield and anthropologist Sarah Wagner. So there has been um, a growing body of research that I was um, that I was able to draw on. And those were probably my main inspirations. Mm, and those are all excellent works, of course. Um, your, now, your book uses several terms that might not be readily familiar to a non-expert audience. Uh, perhaps you could start by discussing the the key term victim redress uh, and perhaps also victim capital and how you define them. Yeah, sure. So I had to come up with, as I said, this is um, this was a bit of an uncharted uh, field, um, and it seemed to me that the terms that we have been using in transitional justice were extremely um, imprecise or a lot of the times too too broad to actually capture um, what I was what I was actually researching and what I was um, uh, finding. And so I had to um, start looking at what I then in the end started calling victim redress, which, um, as, as you might see if you read the book, I defined as uh, both in-kind and material financial benefits um, that individual victim groups um, secure and ultimately receive um, if if the administration works. Um, but I also, um, despite the fact that this seems quite material and, and you know, quite quite physical, um, I also um, understand redress as uh, having this implied direct recognition of the status of a victim. Uh, and I, I'm sure we will talk about what status actually means within the Bosnian context, but victim redress um, therefore not only implies the material benefits, but it also contains this this more symbolical um, status um, um, grant, if you like. Um, so that that this is how I define the term victim redress. Now, victim capital is the other side of the story, and this is where um, I look at the agency of of victims, and, and this this concept also crystallized. Uh, throughout this research and it essentially captures um, the leverage and agency that victims have through what I call international salience, uh, their mobilization resources and moral authority within uh, their communities. Now that's that's already quite a lot of complexity we see Im- embedded there and uh, we're going to further complicate this uh, with with uh, the term victim itself which as you point out in your introduction uh, is not even a universally accepted term and is in fact uh, contested by some and there's alternative terms. So could you perhaps elaborate on on why the very word victim is so disputed? Yeah, um, so I think especially in gender studies and feminist scholarship, there has been a very rich and and wide-ranging debate um, about the usage of the term victims and and survivors, and especially from the perspective of these individuals that have went through these horrific experiences. Um, And the main um, uh, point of these, or the the one... issue around these discussions is about agency and what agency the terms actually imply and what levels of power and empowerment both of these terms apply. Um, So the preferred term um, that is often being used, especially regarding um, victims of, uh, sorry, no, I said the word victims, but survivors uh, of sexual violence is survivors rather than victims, Um, mainly because that then implies a certain level of agency that someone has emerged from this experience more and 
empowered and in charge of one's uh, fate. Uh, and so usually what one sees uh, in, in the current debate regarding gender-based violence is that the preferred usage of the term is, is survivors. And I think in, in the Western world in particular, we generally do talk about survivors rather than victims. Um, now, the problem with a country like Bosnia, and I'm sure a lot of other contexts, is that quite a lot of those survivors um, across the board, not only of sexual violence, actually do consider themselves as victims. They even use the term victims in the names of their organizations. So the main organization for individuals who went through sexual violence is actually called Jena which is big um, women victims of war rather than survivors of war. It's also because the word survivor is a little bit clunky um, in the local languages, so that might be also why. But I think what also emerged throughout my research was that the term victim is a lot of the times being used um, in the courtroom and it's 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 more of a legalistic term that that bears with it um, potentially more empathy from um, uh, from internationals from uh, you know legal experts and so on survivors is is more used uh, in the NGO sector and among, and, and among um, activists if you like and so in the end um, I follow the widespread usage of the term Jeptva uh, victim across Bosnia, even though um, it, I do say as well that in some individual cases, um, some of those people that I spoke to uh, consider themselves to be survivors. Um, I also want to say that there there is a hidden tension uh, within, obviously, um, my coinage of the use of victim capital, because victim, as I said, would imply lack of agency, whereas capital, as I argue throughout the book, does the opposite. It implies quite a lot of agency. And so I think this also quite captures what I was trying to say within the book is that um, though victims slash survivors have quite a lot of power over their redress, um, which is what I denote with the term capital, and this is what most of the book is about. Um, the term victim then implies that there are quite uh, serious limits to these powers, and, and those are some of the structural conditions of the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think also what I enjoy in the book is how you also explore some of the historical roots of uh, the term victim and how it has been used in the past also in a, in a socialist Yugoslav context. So we'll get back to that a bit later. Um, but moving on to the, the groups that you identify in, in your introductory chapter, you identify five distinct groups of victims. Can you briefly present these groups and tell us how you arrived at this typology or categorization? Yeah, so that was a really tricky part of this project because um, anyone who's been studying um, Bosnia in particular uh, would have come across... Um, you know, this general feeling that everyone who's who survived the war in one way or another is a victim. Anyone who went through the siege of Sarajevo is a victim. Anyone who lived in eastern Bosnia and was internally displaced is in one way or another a victim. What I was interested in and what I ended up looking at were mainly policies for people that uh, suffered such harms that are completely irreversible, i.e., you know, you can't um, pay them for a new house, you can't... Um, return them to their places of origin uh, and they suffered such harms that are uh, incomparable to some of the other suffering that most of the population that back then lived in Bosnia would have gone through. And I was mainly interested in those policies, the way that they were adopted at the entity and at the state level. Um, and throughout my field work, um, I was working with quite a, uh, I was interviewing uh, quite a lot of NGOs and civil society organizations. And through them, I got access to these to various victim associations. And basically, through um, uh, my work with these victim associations, I was able to identify five key victim groups um, that have um, self-organized uh, in, in Bosnia after the war and jointly been asking for um, both justice and truth as, you know, the, the, the key demands, if you like, but also um, increasingly more for something that I call redress, which is this compensation. And so these groups are uh, missing persons, families, victims of torture, the so-called civilian war victims, which is the um, severely disabled, but also families of those that were that were killed, victims of sexual violence or survivors of sexual violence, as we discussed, and also what I call military victims. Now, I think the most, uh, the, the group that I had to um, justify the most within these five and why I included, and why I included it 
uh, included it were military victims. Um, these are in Bosnia called uh, Ratni Vojni Invalidi. Um, they're not just veterans, they're not just ex-combatants, um, but they're those that are severely disabled uh, and were severely disabled during the war. Um, and I had to include them so that the analysis actually makes sense and so that the research design makes sense. Um, both conceptually as well as analytically, uh, because within the victimhood regime in Bosnia, they have often mobilized uh, themselves uh, with or against the other groups. And within the social system as it exists in Bosnia, they have been linked to civilian victims of war in particular. So had I left them out, the, the story of redress and how these various groups have been asking for redress would have had um, a gaping hole in, in the analysis. And so this is why they were included. And they also, a lot of the times, do talk about themselves as, as victims of the war. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that also fascinates me about the book um, is the way in which these different groups not only define themselves, but also jostle for position um, with respect to each other uh, and uh, other actors in society, including non-victim groups. So maybe moving on from that, how do victim groups in, in post-war Bosnia actually organize and, and mobilize and seek the recognition that they want? And, and what, are, what are some of the typical challenges they face in doing so? Yeah, so the, the first step, obviously, during already during the war and right after the war, was to create um, formal organizations, the so-called victim associations. Um, there are hundreds of them uh, across Bosnia. Some are place-specific, uh, others are linked to these various sources of victimization, which is what I was focusing on, uh, basically the, the source of the harm, if you like, um, and the nature of the harm. Um, so once they, they've organized themselves, the, the second step is to, and, and that's usually linked to each other, is to, to formulate a set of demands. Initially, the set of demands was um, depending on which type of a group. So among missing people, the first key demand was information. Where are our loved ones? Where are our family members? In, in other cases, it was retribution. Um, victims of uh, survivors of sexual violence um, were quite adamant um, in this respect. Um, and, you know, there is a common or combination of, of, of all of these demands in, in every single one of these groups. But I think, as, as I said already, as time went by, really um, uh, one of these demands uh, that strongly crystallized across these groups has been a certain level of recognition and, and redress. Because I think uh, initially a lot of these groups just expected something to come uh, with time and, and for most of them, not that much has actually arrived. So... The third step, once you know they've formulated demands and organized themselves, is obviously to come up with various strategies, how to push these demands through. Um, and again, depending on the various groups, they would have used uh, campaigns, direct lobbying. Uh, with a lot of them, they already had a direct access to important policymakers or journalists. Um, and they were able um, to draw on various resources, be it you know organizational resources, but also financial resources. And, uh, and clearly, a very important link that a lot of them have established was with um, uh, the international community or international actors that uh, have been active in the in the country. And then this is where the the interesting thing happens: um, how these uh, demands through these strategies resonate with whom, why, and and what happens. Um, and and these are some of the challenges. Um, so. Some of the demands simply have not fit within the wider international or political frames of justice and accountability at the right time um, and are simply dismissed or discarded. Uh, discarded. So, for example, you know, calls for, um, I don't know, special uh, protection of disabled persons was really no one's top priority in the early 2000s. Um, instead, sexual violence has, has really been extremely important uh, as an international topic, as a global topic, if you like, within the framework of human rights. And so were disappearances of civilians and um, combatants after all as well. And, and so some of the challenges are linked to timing as well as uh, the priorities of, of the main actors and those who wield power over, over policymaking. 
And I think the second challenge that uh, until now most of these groups are facing uh, is the the endless set of administrative and bureaucratic issues that Bosnia has, the set of legal issues that Bosnia has. And I think in one way or another, this book is also uh, a a micro study about how uh, the dysfunctional administrative structure of Bosnia has affected those that have needed um, the state or the various authorities to protect them the, the most. And so even as I as I demonstrated in the book, even once some of these policies were adopted, uh, that did not necessarily directly translate into people being able to draw on these and to be able to get these benefits. And until now, a lot of them are still fighting for a simple legal implementation, for an implementation of a law that was adopted and that they fought really hard to be adopted. And so so I think that is the main challenge. Uh, and I think it has uh, had a huge emotional and psychological uh, cost uh, for, for a lot of these individuals. Mm-hmm. And now at, at this point, both you and, and also I have alluded several times to the quote unquote international community or international actors. So could you perhaps say a few words about which international actors are relevant in uh, the context of your study? Yeah, so um, obviously uh, the first one would be the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Former Yugoslavia. I think not so much directly um, initially, uh, but indirectly because um, the ICTY was simply framing um, partially the identities of these victims so that uh, Srebrenica families have become survivors of genocide, if you like, because of the rulings of the ICTY and so on and so on. And um, it is quite interesting to observe that until now, um, most of the, the the victim groups you talk to are very much aware of which cases are relevant to them and which cases they can, so to speak, leverage when talking to any human rights organization. You know, they would say, oh, you know, but in the case of Krstic, we have evidence that this has happened and I was there. So I'm basically directly one of the victims. So in this way, the ICTY has, I think, been important, despite the fact that it has also led to quite a lot of disappointment regarding some of the judgments. Um, Then you obviously had a series of uh, humanitarian organizations and um, it could be, uh, it ranges from the International Red Cross to some of the uh, more religiously linked organizations, if you like, that were providing the direct humanitarian aid after the war, right after the war. And quite a lot of them then in one way or another remained or started supporting local NGO organizations. And, And until now, um, the indirect influence of some of these organizations can be seen in, you know, the capacity building for for some of the NGOs that are working on these issues. Um, I think Tuzla uh, has become a big hub of some of these organizations, uh, in addition to Sarajevo, um, and we have some in Zenica as well. Um, but I think the third actor or a group of actors, if you like, that I feel that we have uh, somewhat underestimated or do not really seem to talk about that much is the International Commission for Missing People, the the ICMP. Um, I was quite struck by how positively the ICMP was evaluated across the country. I think it's it's always hard in Bosnia to find any agreement on anything. Um, And obviously I, I should say that I was, I spent quite a lot of time in Replica Srpska as well, working with the Bosnian Serb victims. So I have heard their perspective as well. And even they were very positive, especially uh, with the, uh, they were very satisfied with the, the initial work of the ICMP, with the technological progress of the DNA analysis that they developed and the support that the ICMP provided to, um, to the families of survivors sorry, to the families of the victims and the families of the survivors. Um, and they, across the board, really positively evaluated not only the actual work, which is finding those individuals that went missing, but also just including those families in their um, in their work, in, you know, any meetings that they had, and and making them feel like part of the process. And, and really, to me, that was quite eye-opening, uh, because that was in a stark contrast to the work of the ICTY. Obviously, one could argue that the work of the ICTY is completely different in its nature to the work of the ICMP. The ICMP simply needed those families. They needed their blood samples, you know, they needed uh, their information, they directly needed to work with them. But in the same way that ICTY needed witnesses, you know, and it seems that really there um, there was a different approach. The ICMP has also been uh, mainly staffed with 
with local Bosnians. So there was a different type of rapport, I think, as well. So the ICMP, I think, was extremely critical um, and, and should not be should not be forgotten. And obviously, we have some other institutions, such as the High Representative. Uh, now we have some of the EU institutions that you know are very interested in human rights issues and do support victims sometimes. Uh, only you know through declarations and so on. Sometimes through direct uh, project funding, but it, it really is a, is a range of of institutions. It's a range of various donors and funders, as well as uh, multinational and multilateral organizations. Well, I think uh, your your point about the the ICMP versus the ICTY is particularly interesting because, as you point out, both of them needed and. Uh, used, and I mean that in in not necessarily, of course, a negative uh, sense of the word, uh, both of them needed and used uh, victims, uh, and yet we get these, as you say, quite different uh, perceptions of them, and certainly the ICTY uh, faced a lot of uh, criticism for, uh, among other things, not sufficiently reaching out uh, to uh, victims and making them feel part of the process. So it's it's very interesting to hear your your reflections on that topic, particularly as you are familiar with uh, both organizations or institutions. Um, moving on to to uh, a later chapter in your book, you uh, have what is I have to say one of the most interesting chapter titles I've seen uh, in recent memory. Uh, your fourth chapter commences with a quote, why is my leg worth less? Um, tell us about this quote and how it allows you to frame your analysis of victim status between civilians, victims of the war on the one hand and combatant victims on the other. Yeah. So the context of this, uh, this quote is that, uh, this emerged, uh, from an interview with a very young and very smart, I must say, Bosnian woman, in Mostar, who was unlucky enough to be at the wrong time, um, wrong place during the war. And as a little girl, she got hit by a shrapnel. And as a result of which she has remained disabled. And so um, she's she's educated, she managed to get a degree in law um, and um, subsequently became quite a prominent voice, um, I mean, at least locally, for civilian war victims in Bosnia, um, and especially with uh, regards to um, this redress that we've been talking about. And the reason for that was, as she explained, that um, she really acutely needed um, uh, the various legal um, uh privileges that uh, the the victim status would have given her so that she can get better medical care or actually any free medical care um, so that she can make the needed adjustments to her to her home um, and so that she can be able to study in the way that she she needed to um, and in a way live normally if you like whatever you met we imagine on the word normally. Um, but her problem was that initially, despite the fact that there was actually a law that she, that she would be entitled to receive something because she was in Mostar, and again, going back to the structures of Bosnia, that law was not being implemented. So first they, um, her and her colleagues had to fight for the law to be implemented. That in the end happened in the early 2000s. And then afterwards, um, she realized that the amount of money she was getting was uh, extremely small and the, the, the various privileges that the law was actually granting her were also quite limited. And so she started wondering why. And then she realized that according to the law, um, civilian war victims are entitled to get only 70% of what the military victims get. And this is what I was saying in the beginning, how intrinsically related these categories and these groups are. Um, so, and of course, there is this combatants premium, if you like. So for the very same injury, if there was such a thing, um, a former soldier would simply receive not only more money, but also a much wider range of services and benefits regarding healthcare. And, you know, um, a lot of the discussion was turning and twisting around what type of um, crutches one could get and what type of uh, prosthetic legs one can get and what type of wheelchairs one can get, which ones are the best ones, and so on and so on. And that and that really mattered for the quality of, of their life. And so this is where, you know, she she uh, she basically said this, why I still don't understand why is my leg worth less. And I think, you know, this also explains the very complex situation um, when, 
you know, the state would, or the entity in this case, would compensate um, a, a person with the very same injury in a completely different fashion, mainly because of this combatant's premium. Um, and it's, on the one hand, it's it's understandable. There has, I mean, uh, ever since Theda Scottsboll's work, you know, there has been this understanding that there simply is a combatant's premium. But on the other hand, um, in a war like this, uh, which has really targeted, not targeted, but where civilians have suffered um, quite dramatically, uh, it is extremely difficult to understand. Um, and so this is this is where this comes from. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Indeed, and uh, of course, embedded in this, as you've suggested implicitly, implicitly as well, and, and also uh drawing a line to to the work of authors like Elisa Helms, whom you mentioned at the outset, uh, there is inexorably a, a, a gender dimension as well because of what we know about the gender composition of combatants versus non-combatants. So that layers into your analysis and and, and the overall, I think, frustration and, and, and tensions yes. here as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, moving to a different set of identities, one that we probably, uh, I think, end up talking uh, perhaps too much about, um, uh, but to what extent did you observe any contact or interaction between victims groups uh, or indeed categories of victim groups or associations uh, of different ethnicities, uh, Bosniak victim groups with Croat victim groups, Croat victim groups with Serb victim groups, etc.? Yeah, so that's a great question. And um, yeah, I could talk endlessly about this because this was really fascinating. Um, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, some of them try to cooperate and some of them are on pretty good terms. I think the civilian war victims, mainly because they have been one of those very forgotten groups, if you like. Um, they have been trying to work together because they simply understood that they don't have any other choice because no one really pays any attention to them otherwise. Um, so um, the civilian war victims of Replika Srpska, um, uh, they have a union and this union also exists in, in Sarajevo for the Federation um, and they have been trying to uh, to work together and so the Croat civilian victims would belong to the uh, entity union if you like that has its seat in, in Sarajevo. They have been trying to work together and you know with their limited resources they've if they've tried, not very successfully. That's not as interesting as the other ones, because in the other ones, politics really uh, kicks in and uh, it, it does get quite frustrating. Um, I think the most uh, politicized, if you like, group, um, unfortunately, uh, are the victims of torture, uh, the so-called logorashi, so people that would have been uh, tortured uh, during the war in various camps um, across across the country. So, um, you, again, you have unions in Republika Srpska, and then you have um, uh, a counterpart union in um, in the Federation. However, the Federation actually had um, two unions, one for Croats, one for Bosniaks. It's quite a complicated story. And here, it's it's a very convoluted political story that in a way mirrors what has been happening at high-level politics in Bosnia in terms of how they have been cooperating with each other or or, or not, or falling out with each other. Um, I think the the interesting one, or the um, the one that has been trying to balance it out, was the the, the Croat leader of, of the um, of the union, who unfortunately died about a year ago. And I think he was the only one who was always trying to bring them together. Um, in Replika Srpska, the leader has been basically, um, as, as someone finally told me, a leader appointed for life. He actually was in the end changed about uh, last year, I think, that there's a new leader. But he was a leader of this organization for 20 odd years. In the Federation, they have been changing and depending on which political party uh, you know, was it the Social Democrats or what, was it the Party of Democratic Action? Depending on that, they were either collaborating or were not collaborating. Extremely convoluted story, so they have not really achieved much together. Uh, I think mainly because from the leadership, there really was not that much of a 
willingness to do so. Um, but also because they have been extremely corrupt. Uh, and I'm now I mean the leadership. I don't mean the, 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 the individual members. Mm-hmm. So the last federation leader, uh, I think, ended up in prison for opening um, a genocide museum in Sarajevo. And, you know, basically very... Um, uh, unpleasant story about what has been what has been happening uh, amongst them. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's some work by uh, Cecile Joanneau who who has also been looking at you know the more local level um, politicization of of some of these uh, associations as well that I strongly recommend reading. Um, now the other ones have again differed with the missing persons the whole story and i know we will talk about this has been mainly dominated by the srebrenica genocide and so despite the fact that there has been cooperation and um as i said the icmp has been actually the one trying to bring these organizations together all the time there has always been this inherent tension that it's the srebrenica associations that dominate so um and now you also have some missing persons associations in republika srpska that simply do not recognize the genocide in Srebrenica, hence they will not cooperate right. with these associations. Um, and victims of sexual violence, survivors of sexual violence, despite the fact that there is an organization in Republika Srpska, it was clearly set up uh, only for Serb women. It was a huge controversy in 2013. Again, they do not really cooperate with the one in, in Sarajevo. So I think the ones that collaborate the most or used to collaborate the most, uh, um, funnily enough, are the military victims and are the, the invalids who would do various sports events together. And, you know, they would do things here and there together. But really, uh, to, to talk about a sustained cooperation or collaboration there, there really hasn't been much of that. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned this with the veterans organizations because on a, on a purely anecdotal level and and with nothing approaching your level of field research, my own uh, observations have been uh, that I've had, had occasion in Bosnia to remark on the, uh, in my opinion, kind of surprising uh, affinity uh, that I observed uh, on several occasions in different fora uh, among veterans organizations where a lot of the male veterans seemed in a way kind of relaxed around each other and also because they exchanged, for example, stories about being uh, quote-unquote ordinary soldiers who at a very young age were forced as they saw it by historical circumstances uh, to to enter into armed conflict. And that's kind of, I think, in a way served to remove the, the burden um, both for themselves, but also they recognize that in their counterparts of, of responsibility for the uh, negative things that uh, were associated with, with, with their roles. Um, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, since you mentioned uh, the genocide in, in Srebrenica in uh, 1995, uh, you, you have an entire chapter, uh, chapter five, where you discuss what you call the Srebrenica effect. So could you further uh, explain and elaborate that? Yeah, so a bit of context. So the only state-level law that was ever adopted in, in, in Bosnia in two, was in 2004 for missing uh, persons, for the families of missing persons. And now... This law was quite um, revolutionary, if you like, in the way that it was adopted. It was through the participation of all these associations that we were talking about for missing persons. And um, it was spearheaded by the ACMP. It led to the opening of a, of a state-level institution. It led to probably some of the best statistical data that we have about this population, who, where, what. Um, and uh, it also led to the adoption of a, of a victim compensation law. Now, the victim compensation law has never really been implemented, so that is not such a positive story. The other parts of the law have in one way or another been implemented. Now, why I call this Srebrenica effect was that, uh, I mean, the ICMP was uh, was set up. It didn't exist before 1996. And the ICMP was set up mainly because of Srebrenica. The shame of Srebrenica has really led to quite a lot of heartbreaking changes uh, within the international community. I dislike the term international community, but I still keep using it because it's a, it's a shortcut uh, for the various uh, external international actors. And so the ICMP was was set up in a way to to help, um, if you like, to um, uh, 
to, to help the local population to find the missing and, and um, to find their bodies and to bury them, to help them with the financial costs of the burials and the findings and so on and so on. And because of that, a series of other things have happened, uh, some of them being the, the setups of these various associations, the opening of um, various um, memorial centers, the biggest one obviously being the one in Potocari next to Srebrenica. Um, and... Obviously, ultimately, it was also then the adoption of the of the 2004 um, Missing Persons Law. And so the shame of Srebrenica, the implication of the international actors, the, the Dutch Battalion and the UN, in, in, the, uh, in this war crime, in this genocide, and the fact that no one really stopped it, uh, has in a way led ultimately to a much more careful approach and to much more uh, attention that was being given to this issue that ultimately led, led to this law. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, moving beyond also just the, the, the laws and the categories that we've already been operating on to, to a, a, a particular category of, of violence uh, that I think has uh, to date often been uh, neglected, but which I think you and, and, and other uh, recent authors have, have really done a great job of bringing to the forefront, namely the category of, of sexual violence uh, uh, committed incidentally also against victims of both genders uh, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. What specific modalities of victim status and redress does your book ag- address with respect to such victims? Yeah, so victims of sexual violence um, are now essentially written into the law uh, for civilian war victims uh, as of 2006 within the Federation. And as of 2018, they are able to get some benefits also as part of the so-called torture law that was adopted in Republika Srpska. So that is what the law says. Now, the, the problem with this this category, if you like, is um, that sexual violence is, is a very specific war crime. It's a very emotional, it's a very private, private matter, uh, especially in, 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 you know, in countries where um, basically being violated in this way is, is considered shameful. Um, it, it bears a stigma. Uh, and so what I realized is that despite the fact that now there, are, there is a legal basis for these um, survivors to come out and basically claim some of their benefits, and they are, they're not huge, but to get around 250, 300 euro a month in Bosnia is actually not negligible. It's not a negligible amount, and it does come with some, some benefits. But the number of individuals that have actually come out uh, and gone through the process of certification, as they, as they call it, to actually receive these benefits is quite small. Um, it's, it's around a thousand, uh, just over a thousand individuals. Um, there are some men included in this as well in the Federation. And despite the fact that some of the estimates from the war, you know, ranging from 20 to 30, 40,000 of, of violated individuals, it, it's quite a small number. Um, there are various reasons for that. Obviously, some of these individuals died, committed suicides, moved out, etc., etc. But still, it is a it is a small number. And I think here in the case of sexual violence, what comes out very, very strongly is how the process matters as much as the outcome. So achieving this status and the procedures that have been put in place for achieving this status are sometimes so traumatizing for the individuals that it's simply emotionally not worth it for them to go through this. Um, And so I think often I I face this question from from people, you know, that, that, that don't really study these issues, like why are they coming out now? You know, they should have been coming out 10, 20 years ago. And if you think about it, um, to be violated in such a way um, is something that most people really just want to forget about. And it takes a lot of time to, first of all, emotionally deal with it. Then a lot of people are also just waiting for their husbands or parents or someone to, to pass away so that their families just don't know about this because it's personally so shameful for them or they they're waiting for someone in their community uh, you know uh, not to be present anymore so that they feel safe uh, to say so i think some of them have been still waiting for some of the the perpetrators to simply be brought to the justice so that they can feel safe to come out and so on so there are so many various reasons why this really hasn't worked in the way that it should have worked despite the very brave work of organizations such as Medica Zenica, Iva Jene, uh, Snaga Jene, and so on. It really has been quite a disheartening um, a disheartening story. And I must say that, unfortunately, 
um, the very dominant uh, victim association in the Federation um, initially having an extremely positive impact on this story. I think increasingly, especially because of these quite traumatizing procedures, has also negatively impact, impacted how this law is being implemented because it has basically become a gatekeeper to whom uh, whom uh, the status can be um, given to, despite the fact that it doesn't have monopoly anymore over the procedures, but still it wields so much power over this issue that it has become extremely unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, there you're, you're really dealing with a lot of, of very controversial and sensitive issues. The I mean, not least the the notion of victim groups who become uh, gatekeepers and uh, the risk that instead of becoming facilitators for victims, they in a way uh, uh, become almost barriers uh, to the uh, redress uh, process or uh, in, in ways institute various forms of hierarchies. And of course, uh, one could mention uh, the obvious point uh, that uh, re-traumatization uh, and suppression uh, of memory uh, or uh, reluctance to approach the authorities is uh, a widespread phenomenon when we look at sexual violence in any country, uh, uh, much less, of course, a, a country uh, that is as traumatized as uh, Bosnia was after the war and where uh, there may also be additional cultural considerations that play in. And I think one of the things that I really uh, respect about your work is the the nuanced way in which you approach all of these uh, interlocking uh, factors. Speaking of uh, challenging approaches, you, you mention in your book that your field research at times uh, involved speaking with uh, informants who had, let us say, very strong and from your point of view, um, one could say problematic um, uh, or very uh, maybe extreme points of view regarding, for example, the events of the Bosnian war and in particular major war criminals or uh, specific atrocities committed during the war and how they perceived those how did you as a researcher in the field navigate your interaction and conversations with such informants? Yeah, so I think this is probably where I have grown the most as a researcher throughout the, the work. I think I have started very much with this mindset that, you know, it's going to be, we're going to have a discussion about this and I'm going to lay out the facts and we're going to talk about this and they're going to see for what, you know, the facts are. And I think I tried this twice um, and realize how, how wrong that was of me to do so because who was I uh, to be lecturing you know my my respondents on what their experiences and their views were they live in Bosnia I probably did I mean I did live in Bosnia most of the time as well but obviously I didn't have uh, any of their experiences um, and I think this is really where my entire methodological and ethical approach I think to doing field work changed um, so I don't think we have to necessarily, step back and simply take quite a lot of the untruths that we are being told um, as and accept them and simply accept them and, and write them in and and then judge them in our own work and say, well, this is, you know, you can see how nationalist these people are because they don't even know that this was a genocide, etc., etc. I think what I try to do and what I'm increasingly trying to do is I, I keep calling this um, empathetic uh, research or empathetic academic approach is to understand why this person holds these views and to try to give the context. And so let me just give you an example of probably the most, from my perspective, frustrating and I would say excruciating interviews I ever had to do. And I had to sit there for three hours or three and a half hours. I think the interview lasted. And it really was probably the worst experience I had. Um, but at the same time, it was the most telling for what, I, what I'm what i talking about. So this is... Um, 
basically leader of the missing persons organization. He's a male uh, in Republika Srpska. And his view of not only the most recent past of the Bosnian War and the Srebrenica genocide, but also the Second World War is completely distorted from, you know, any established historical view of what actually happened during the Second World War, what happened in Srebrenica and so on. And the number of conspiracy theories that he was able to enumerate throughout the interview was was endless from, you know, uh, dead bodies being brought from Kosovo to Srebrenica, to Bosniaks shooting each other, to uh, the Bosniak army shooting each other etc etc it was it was endless but the problem is that this man uh didn't fight he was a civilian during the war um and he had one son his son was a soldier for the the army of Republika Srpska who went missing during the war um this man does not know what happened to him his body was never found and he is deeply traumatized by that he's basically still grieving for his son in the same way that a mother in Srebrenica is grieving for hers, one could say. And so to him to accept that his son was killed, went missing, and on top of that was killed in the name of an army or an idea or an ideology that committed a genocide is completely inconceivable because it would suddenly make his son's death even more futile than it already probably is. So the nationalism and, and you know the stories he was basically telling himself, and I actually think he really believed in them, to him, it was it was emotional and psychological coping. So his defense of Republika Srpska, his defense of the denial of Srebrenica, was basically a deeply personal matter, and it was a coping mechanism. And I think, to me, that was a revelation to understand. This doesn't excuse him. This doesn't excuse a person of, you know, a person who's traumatized as he is and who's grieving in the way that he's obviously shouldn't be in this position and shouldn't be speaking on behalf of a group of people in the way that he is. But that is a separate issue. I think at a personal level, I felt it was really important for me to to put this within a context and not to judge this person at face value for what he was telling me and for these fabrications and these fake stories um, that he was telling me because deep down I really felt sorry for him. I really losing a child is is unimaginable, and it does not really matter um, if it's one son or seven sons. Ultimately, it's it's a child, and so. I think this is where I have grown the most because I always try to, and I hope I succeeded, to put some of this context in why you know people actually do truly believe in these fabrications and why the denial is so pervasive in Replica Srpska. And the same actually applies to the other side as well, although I do think there is a bit more empathy from the other side. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think... It's this this lack of empathy obviously pains me from from the Bosnian Serb side in particular, but but from both sides, I'd say, really. Well, I, I can definitely understand that, and I, I really appreciate how you can speak uh, openly about how your your views evolved, and uh, I can only state that as as someone who worked at the ICTY, I know that uh, my own views on, uh, for example. A defense counsel, the way in which uh, perpetrators uh, defended themselves, uh, and the entire dynamic between defense and the prosecution also changed over time uh, by really trying to relate to these people, not in a in a relativistic way, of course, but in a way of trying to understand why they were taking the positions uh, that that they did. Now, um, I'm going here towards the end to exercise my uh, prerogative of uh, what we in Bosnia would call professionalna deformatia and uh, and speak as a historian. So uh, one thing that fascinated me in your book is that you um, uh, talk a little bit about how uh, terminology has in, evolved or been influenced uh, as re- relates to victims by the legacy of the U- Yugoslav communist regime. In her own book um, on uh, victims and particularly also looking at the way in which the Holocaust is dealt with in the former Yugoslavia, uh, our colleague Jelena Subotic argues that the Yugoslav communist regime was not particularly interested in victims after the Second World War, but instead preferred to commemorate resistance fighters and liberators, as they were called. This obviously links to the cult of the fighter that you mention in your book. So do you detect any long-term effect of this in the way victimhood was constructed? 
in Bosnia or uh, and is constructed? Um, and do you see any other um, uh, connections between the Yugoslav past and even the Second World War in victim identities and processes of victim redress? No, for sure. For sure. There, there is a clear link. And I think especially initially in the way things were set up. And, you know, this, this whole idea of this sacrosanct status that one needs to obtain uh, as a victim actually comes from this Borachki, uh, uh, from this combatant status that uh, a lot of these partisans had after the Second World War. I think Heike, uh, Heike Karga, uh, Karge has also written some work on this in German, uh, which is fascinating, but not that much other work I think has been been done on this. Um, but I think the, the resonance now is a lot lower to what it was initially. But as I say, the structures were initially set up. Basically, a lot of the a lot of the laws were simply transposed from the former Yugoslavia. So you know the disparities we were talking about between civilian and military victims were simply taken over from the from the previous system, um, and. So at the structural level, you definitely see these legacies. Some of them have changed <clears throat> incrementally over the time. Some of them have simply stayed in the way that they were. <clears throat> I think there also is some um, uh, psychological, if you say, legacy. And I think that can be quite uh, visible when you speak to some of the, the veterans, um, some of the former soldiers who really do have quite a lot of disdain towards civilians. I have heard them say things such as, you know, well, they were just uh, the wrong time, the wrong place. So why should they even receive anything? We were the ones, you know, who were uh, putting, uh, you know, our health and our life and everything up there on the line and, and knowingly doing so. So obviously we need to be the ones that have a higher status, if you like. So there is a hierarchy here as well. And I think that certainly is a legacy of the former Yugoslavia. But I don't think that's necessarily so specific to this region. I, I really do think uh, I'm currently in the United States and, you know, the obsession with veterans that there is here, wherever you go, it's the veterans that go first. It's be it boarding on a plane, be it, you know, any any authority, they have a preference. There is this, this military premium that exists worldwide. Right. And there we could, of course, have, a, I think, a very interesting discussion about militarization of societies and, and what that means, because the socialist Yugoslavia was throughout its existence also in many aspects a, in a very heavily militarized society. And that, in many ways, already before the war started, one could argue, stacked the uh, deck in favor of, of combatants over other kinds of victims. Um, now, um, for my last two questions, uh, I'd first like you to maybe um, draw out, I mean, you've already given us a lot of insight into your research, but what what major lesson or lessons, what what is the kind of main takeaway you would like readers to draw from your book? So I think at the, at the policy level, which is where I really want to uh, make some impact if, if I can, um, is how important it is to to actually include, but actively include, not just tokenistically include, but to include survivors in the policies that are being designed for them. Because there were so many flaws in these various laws and various loopholes that, you know, a legislator simply cannot even think about unless you have those individuals in the room and and you understand what their grievances are and what their needs are. Um, and so I, again, I'm, I'm just going to go back to the law for the, um, uh, missing persons, which on paper is a very good law, I think, because it does address quite a lot of the, the issues that um, this, those families have been dealing with. The problem is that it's not being implemented for various other reasons that have nothing to do with what is actually written in the actual law. Um, and so I think quite a lot of the problems are actually part of the fact that in the other legislation victims were simply excluded and there was really no meaningful participation from their side and at the same time there is also something of too much of participation or too much of visibility of victims in post-war societies I think um, and I think that is also partially because they have felt that they were not meaningfully included in some of the more important processes after the war um, in, in the peace building processes and so they are finding other avenues and other ways how to be visible and how to be meaningful uh, for Bosnia. And I think 
this is extremely sensitive to talk about it, but I think in, in various aspects and in, in, in some parts, you know, in pre-electoral campaigns and things like things like that, they really are um, suddenly advocating for causes that really are not theirs um, and have not much to do with their own causes. Um, so I think it's this double-edged sword of uh, too little on the one hand and too much on the other. Mm-hmm. And my final question, which I uh, hope you can uh, run with, uh, is if you were asked by your colleagues, and in particular uh, young up-and-coming researchers, uh, what related research questions you would like to see explored pursuant to your own book and your own research, what would you say? So I think if we if we think about the region and, and Bosnia in particular, I think we still need to start studying the other side, so to speak. It's we still there there's an, a lack of academic empathy towards the Bosnian Serb and Bosnian Croat uh, side of the story. And I think once we know more about that, then we can put the, the pieces together. It's the whole scholarship on Bosnia has been extremely one sided, um, especially on these issues regarding transitional justice. So I think that is from my perspective, something that I would have loved to do, work on veterans as well. We don't have much work on veterans. And I think that opens an avenue for great, for a great comparative research project with, you know, Croatia and Bosnia and Serbia. And that leads me to, I think more broadly, um, we do need more comparative work. I think as you know, with this book, I was very much closely involved with one particular case study, but there's, I think a comparative approach would have maybe shown me that this is not that unique to Bosnia. Maybe this is a much wider phenomenon, but I wasn't necessarily able to do that with the very close up, you know, field work that I was doing in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's uh, definitely plenty that remains to be researched. And uh, I think in many ways, uh, your book uh, also provides us with a bit of a roadmap and a provocation in a good way of how such future research may be structured. Uh, Jesse, thank you for being my guest today on the New Books Network. I uh, am very glad that we've had the opportunity to discuss this book. I encourage everyone to go and read it. And I would also like to say that uh, given uh, what you have produced with this book, I'm very much looking forward already to seeing how you deal with the topic of victimhood in a more historical context. Thank you very much. It was, it was a pleasure to discuss this with you. Thank you. All right. That concludes this uh, episode of the New Books Network. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and take care.